Welcome to the Runners Connect, Run to the Top podcast, where it's all about learning from the best minds in the sport so you can train smarter, stay healthy, and run faster now. And now your host, Lucas Felton. Hi, everyone, and welcome to this week's episode of Runners Connect, Run to the Top podcasts. I'm your host, Lucas Felton. In the summer of 1996, a newly graduated University of Arkansas runner named Dina Drossen came to a decision for her future. She wanted to be a professional runner. With that, she packed up and moved to the mountains of Colorado to find out how good she could become. The result of that decision was one of the most prolific and successful careers ever. Dina won several medals at World Championship events, including a bronze at the 2004 Olympic Marathon, and set American records at nearly every distance from 5K through the marathon, several of which she still holds. Like all elite runners, Dina trained extremely hard. However, she talks in much greater detail about the intention she paid to recovering from her training and being ready for the next workout. This process has only become more important as Dina has transitioned into the master's ranks and become a mother. Dina currently helps run the Mammoth Track Club in Mammoth Lakes, California with her husband Andrew, in addition to continuing to train and raise her daughter Piper. This is a great interview with one of running's all-time greats who is giving back to her sport. A few of the things Dina and I talked about included Dina's background and development into a world-class runner, the idea that good relationships and a clear conscience contribute to one's recovery process, how Dina's running and life have changed both as she's gotten older and since she's become a mother, and the caster's takeover of the Mammoth Track Club and its transformation into the driving force behind all organized running in Mammoth Lakes. We'd like to thank Dina for her time and wish her the best of luck in future running and parenting adventures. As usual, any resources mentioned in this podcast can be found at runnersconnect.net slash runninginterviews slash Dina Caster. Once again, I'm your host, Lucas Felton, and thanks for listening. So, Dina, thank you so much for being on our show today. Can you start out for us by describing your background and how you got into running? Yeah, I'm 41 years old right now, and I started running when I was 11, so I've been running for for most of my life and um, got involved in running a youth track club um, at the age of 11 after failing in multiple sports from soccer to softball to ice skating and um, and finally just got my mom wanted me in a more social sport and a lot of kids my age were, were running track. So joined the local track club and we had rivals um, with the Thousand Oaks Track Club where Marion Jones was a, a phenom at the time, even at a young age. So we ended up um, going right to distance running so that my self-esteem wasn't ruined by having to compete against her and a couple other great sprinters in the area. So started distance running immediately and loved that first run setting out into the Santa Monica Mountains, just fell in love with, with the, the act of running. So been um, pursuing it ever since. So over your career, you obviously had a pretty good uh, amount of success in high school and college, but not necessarily anything that would indicate the heights that you eventually got to. What do you think led to that kind of to that kind of success that you had as an elite athlete? Yeah, it's it's very clear to me that at a young age in youth track and then in high school and college, I I relied on on talent, and so I a lot of times believe that talent is a curse because it wasn't until. Um, I graduated from college and decided to see what happens if I applied myself and if my talent was even still still available to tap into that potential um, and realized 
that if you have talent to be able to, to make those choices of, of resting well and training hard and eating well, that when you combine all the choices you make in, in the entirety of the day um, towards your sport and towards your goals, um, how much easier it is to be successful. And uh, success doesn't come easy, but it, it definitely, when you're making the right choices, it definitely um, makes it easier. And so I've always thought since that moment, thought that talent was a curse because for so many years I never knew how to apply myself in the sport. And it wasn't until I was ready to, to walk away from it and pursue a real job that I decided, you know, I'm going to give this one more shot and actually try at it. So um, so made the choice to get to altitude, to train with a team under Coach V. Hill, and that's when I started seeing um, success and leaps in my, in my running fitness um, right from the start. There's an interview out there, it's probably hard to find now, with Coach V. Hill where he describes um, how he kind of came to be your coach, and he describes it as kind of a passing comment of, okay, yeah, you can come, you know, come out to Alamosa and, and see how it goes, and he was out of town at the time and got back, and you had uh, had up and moved to t- moved to town, and were ready to were ready to go right when he got back. It's kind of a funny yes, story. I, I wasn't sure how he how he'd take that, but I had one conversation with him, just picking his brain on on professional running and and his group and Alamosa, Colorado, and. He um, to this day he says on the on the um, and anytime someone questions him he says how he was trying to discourage me to to come there to just come and visit because Alamosa isn't for everybody and that he was really discouraging but in my mind my memory is that I hung up the phone more motivated that I and more driven than I had been in the past five years. And I got out and put on my running shoes, and by the time I finished the, this hard hour run, dripping with sweat in the heat of um, heat and humidity of Arkansas, I had made a few phone calls, got a place to live, found a job in, in Colorado, packed up my, my Wrangler uh, Jeep with my favorite belongings, and hit the roads the next morning. I mean, it was that, that fast. I was so um, just so motivated and, and driven by him. And it's, I think anyone that has, um, that has the opportunity to, to sit down and have a, have a discussion or even listen to, to Coach V. Hill as he speaks will, will attest to that same feeling. It doesn't matter what your sport or what your profession, what your age is, that he's just a, a person that brings out the best in, in people. And although he claims to have been discouraging on the, on the phone conversation, that's a testament to how encouraging he actually is when he, when he tries to be. <laughs> Absolutely. So talk about that transition from Fayetteville in Arkansas and then Santa Monica in California, both uh, pretty warm places to altitude and and in the mountains of Colorado where he, he'll describe it as getting to easily 30 below in certain days and it really doesn't make a difference to him. We're going out to run. How was that transition just climate-wise? Yeah, I didn't feel it was a, a tough transition to go from the heat and humidity of Arkansas to, to the aridness of, of Colorado, both the dry heat in the, in the summer months um, coupled with the the intense cold of the winter. We had goals and a and a schedule to schedule to follow, and um, and it was our job to follow it. So I loved that he made us believe in the process of of hard work and and getting there, and that um, and that you just went out and, and pursued it. We can always make excuses whether you're you're tired or too hungry or it's too cold out or um, or something's going on in, in, in your personal life, you could always make excuses to not get out the door, but he's one of the people that brings it out of you that um, you just find that way and you and you start pursuing it. So um, I love that he made the, 
um, the elements of Colorado kind of second fiddle to what we were trying to, to accomplish um, as a team and as individuals. So um, I look back and can't believe we are running in 20, 20 degree, um, uh, 20 below zero conditions and howling winds. And um, I think I've, I've softened as, as I've gotten older. <laughs> but um, but in, the, in the moment, we just got out there together as a team and did it. And I think also a a team atmosphere definitely helps when when conditions are tough. There was a, it's not very often up here in Mammoth Lakes, California, that we get bad weather. We get sometimes 600 inches of snow in a in a winter, but we can drive 10, 15, 20 minutes down the mountain and be in dry desert. There was one day this year that we um, we drove down and the temperatures were also low in the valley um, in the desert and. We got winds and cold temperatures and rain that turned into snow, and we call it, the team now calls it That Friday, because it was just a <laughs> Friday we will never, never forget, all doing tempo runs just in miserable conditions. We all were borderline hypothermic and thawing out and in pain when we got in the car after the workout. It was just one of those days, but if I didn't have a team around me, there wasn't a chance I would have even gotten out for, for my first step. It's just well, everyone's here to do it, so let's make the best of it. And it's your thought that you don't want to complain or be the downer um, that brings that brings negative attention to, to what the day has to offer. And we were all miserable, but we all got the great workouts in, and I really believe it built it built toughness and an understanding that, um, that a positive environment really brings out the best in people. Absolutely. So I'd like to move to, uh, to, your tr- to a little bit about your training, both both when you were starting out as an elite athlete and, and kind of now. Describe Coach Vigil's training for us and what and what your schedule looked like, say, in the mid-90s. Yeah, I think I was pretty pretty low mileage when I got to Coach Vigil in 1996. When I got to Alamosa, he was actually at the Atlanta Olympics, um, which is where he was when I moved into town. So I got to visit with him after after he came home from uh, from a great Olympics in Atlanta. And... We discussed my goals of making the Olympic team and breaking 15 minutes in the 5,000 meters. And he saw my mileage and my credentials, and he was like, well, this is going to take a lot of work, (laughs) so you better hunker down and and do things right. And live an athlete's lifestyle is what he always preaches of simplicity and motivation. And so he built me up. He wouldn't let me work out, do any hard workouts with the team unless I – um, until I got into three consistent weeks of 70 miles. So I built up a couple weeks, up to 70 miles – kept it at 70 miles for three weeks, and then I was able to join the team to, to do some um, some mile repeats and tempo runs and long runs, and so it was then, I feel like he had a very long-term approach with me, a patient and long-term approach, which if you want to be in the sport for a while is, um, if you're just trying to, to go for one good last year, then you might want to be a little more aggressive, but I had a, a long-term vision of making the next Olympic team and, and even beyond that. So um, so he was very patient in the approach and ended up um, after, I think it was after two years of working with him, got in my first 100-mile week. And in 2001, when I ran my first marathon, the New York Marathon, um, got up to 120 miles a week. And I think the highest, the highest we got was, um, was 140, but it was almost like it wasn't a, a definite 140 on a certain week. He would say like, okay, sometime this month when you're feeling good, you can you can up your mileage, like add a couple miles onto your Wednesday run, add a couple miles onto your evening runs to get that to get that number up. So he didn't want to force it on a week that I was 
super tired and lacking motivation. He wanted it on a, on a week that I was sharp and excited and, and could get in those extra miles to, to make that 140 barrier to kind of build my, build my endurance for the, the marathon distance itself. So he was very patient with me. And now as I've, as I've aged and we've consulted with Coach Hill, Andrew and I have consulted with Coach Hill. it was um, less about mileage now. So now I'm probably running 65 to 70 miles a week. Um, so cut my, my mileage more than half in some instances, and it's real emphasis on quality. So my trying to nail those mile repeats and nail the, the tempo runs and get in good solid long runs and not necessarily getting in second second runs. My evening runs have, have gone away. I've maybe run three evening runs in the past year and a half. So it's really more of an emphasis on, on quality now that I'm an aging athlete and, um, and not wanting to injure myself with extra mileage. Sounds pretty fair, and it sounds like you put in your fair share of, of high-volume weeks before, so you probably got something to go on. So having read Coach Hill's book, uh, the schedules just seem like both a lot of volume and a whole lot of back-to-back quality days, like mile repeats followed by two medium runs, followed by a tempo run, followed by a long run. How did first of all is that accurate yes and i i think he how he his approach um to uh, to all these workouts his his um, schedule is very demanding but he talks about the body being highly adaptable but you have to give it a rest phase and that rest phase is from when one workout ends and the next one begins so everything that you do in the time in between should be to facilitate rest recovery and repair so it's sleeping um, midday naps which aren't in my schedule after having a after having my daughter um, they've left the schedule hence um, some of the mileage coming down because if I'm taking away critical recovery time I also need to take away some some of the work workload that's involved in that but that midday nap so essential for releasing um, human growth hormone naturally lowering your cortisol levels like all the all the all the work that you do in a in a workout is, isn't any good unless you get that that good hardcore sleep and rest and repair um, um, coupled with it. So, uh, rest rest and recovery was huge with Coach V Hill. Like the the template for training was there, but the rest and recovery was the athlete's obligation to make sure they were taking care of it. So I took that very seriously, and that came from sleeping and on a nutritional level, making sure I'm getting food in immediately after after training so that that could help with the repair process um, muscularly and hormonally. So just all those important things, staying hydrated throughout the day. Um, and then he really emphasizes having um, good relationships as, as a precedent for, for being able to perform at your, at your best. So making sure you're nurturing your relationships with family, friends, your church, your community, and um, and he's always been a big believer in that. So rest, rest for recovery, nutrition for recovery, and then having good relationships. You could have a good conscience going in and, and, and getting the best out of yourself on a daily basis. Now that's a little different. Uh, I don't think I've ever heard anything like that from anybody else. I've read that in a book. I read that in a book once. There was a sections here and there on Coach Hill, and he was, and then it discussed that pretty heavily. And I found that very intriguing. Um, can you go into that a little more about why how yeah, having good I, relationships can affect yeah, how you're physically I, running? He, 
he was really um, he's he's a good sleeper, Coach Meal. He takes naps every day, and he goes to bed before the sun most of the time, and and wakes up before the sun. But um, but when you ask him, oh, how'd you sleep? He's like, I slept great. I always sleep great. I have I have a good conscience. I have a clean conscience. That's his big his big thing that he can. Um, that a lot of times, if you you have conflict in your in your life and conflict with relationships, that um, it is taxing on you hormonally, on your adrenals, and um, and that will then affect your your performance, whether it's running performance or performance in life itself. So he was very big just on overall health to have to have healthy um, have healthy relationships, and so. He, he could probably understand more about what hormones are released when you're stressed and taxed or your conscience isn't clean, but, um, but he always preached like just having good relationships with those around you and, and how gratifying those relationships can be. He has so many connections and friendships around the world that he continues to nurture as he's in his mid-80s and, um, and just an extraordinary person that he has learned from a lot of hard work in his past. He was raised with not much, and he's created a, um, a, a dynasty in, in coaching as far as I'm concerned and as far as a lot of people are concerned. And all of that is based off of not just getting in the classroom and learning and getting his doctorate, but creating those relationships and, and nurturing them. He's a very generous man, and he taught me through observing him first and then um, through actions just how good it feels to, to be generous towards people both in, in time and materialistic items that um, that nothing we have is is really worth anything unless we're sharing it with other people. So he's, he has um, demonstrated by example and, um, and helped me lead a, a life that way and, um, and really having those, those relationships is so empowering and also is your support system so important to have as you're pursuing things that are unobtainable in, in a certain moment and before you know it, you're, you're right in front of your dreams coming true. That's a very intriguing position. I, uh, I don't think that's something most people would think about. So I would like to get back a little bit more to, uh, to the, some technical aspects. Um, so in addition to the, just the volume increasing, how did your training kind of progress as you moved up in race distance? Um, I think I moved up in race distance because it started to feel better. Uh, when I first was working out, my first couple years working out with his, his group, which was, um, which was men, was that I was just getting dropped all the time. So I'd try to stay with them on a Sunday run and the end of a 15-mile run left me, like, defeated and depleted and just totally wasted and exhausted where I'd sleep the afternoon away only to wake up to have dinner and go right back to sleep just really took a lot out of me. So I thought, like, 26.2 miles is impossible. Like, that, that can't be healthy. It's not natural if I feel this way after 15. But I was just running the 15-milers aggressively. And there was one day that I was visiting my parents in Southern California and ran from their house near the Santa Monica Mountains to the beach and back, and I had never done it and always wanted to, and it was an 18-mile run, so nine miles to the sand and then back, and I, after doing that run, I was so intimidated by the distance that I took it nice and easy on the way down to the coast, and, um, and as I turned around and started coming back, realizing that the miles were just clipping by, that I started to get um, excited, and my endorphins were going, and I started charging up the hills, and by the time I got back 
um, to my phone, I called Coach Vigil and said, I just had an amazing 18-mile run. I think I can run a marathon someday. And he said, baby, I've been waiting to hear those words come out of your mouth. And, uh, um, and a few months later, I was enrolled in the New York Marathon. So um, it was just that I needed to, I needed to find it on my own terms, and he was patient again to to let me to let me get there on my own. And also, you also so you also had a lot of success over a whole lot of different distances, and also race services. Um, How did you adjust for different different race distances? Like you set American records, everything from five k on the road to through the marathon, both of which you currently still hold. So, how did you adjust for that? Yeah, I think I think specificity is really important. Um, I. I actually, Andrew, um, my coach and husband, now said that um, that he noticed in looking back at all my logs when he started coaching me just a couple years ago, um, when Coach Terrence Mahan left the Mammoth Track Club to us, um, he looked back at all my logs and said, you know, all of your strongest years were years that you incorporated cross-country, cross-country training and racing. So last year was kind of my my big um, comeback to, to cross-country. It was so exciting to get on those uneven surfaces and strengthen my feet and ankles, and I felt like it offered me a lot of power through the rest of the year. So cross-country is, is big on my on my program, but then when it comes to, to racing, you need to make sure, and it does take, when I, we're running on grass, doing intervals on grass, it takes a few weeks to get to be able to pop off the ground a little more. So the training specifically for that is important. And then on the on the other side of things, if you're going to the roads, it's important to do a lot of your intervals and some of your long runs, doing some some pounding on the on the asphalt to get your legs used to used to um, how to respond to that. And the track, of course, just making sure you know how to run in circles and um, and take those turns, get your feet and your hips all used to taking that that turn in the same direction and being able to um, really know pace really well um, that's important on the track so they're all really important and we incorporated that no matter what we were training for that we made our intervals um, more specific to whatever surface um, we were going to be racing or at least our race focus for that season and as for distance did did mileage change a lot for training for 5k versus training for marathon or or anything yeah, like that? It, my, no, the, um, the, the mileage may have changed, So, but I feel like when I, even when I moved up from being mostly a 10K, 10K runner and dabbling in some 15 and, and half marathons, that when I jumped up to the marathon, it was mostly my, um, my long run that changed, um, changed dramatically in, in distance, going from 15 to 18 miles up to 20, 24-mile runs. And then um, my tempo runs, instead of six to eight, jumped up to ten. So it wasn't that that it wasn't that significant. Um, wasn't that significant of a jump? I was r- running pretty high mileage at the 10k distance, um, running 110, 115 mile weeks for the 10k. So it wasn't that big of a leap when I chose the marathon. I've I've asked that question of a few different people, and that's usually the answer they give is something like where overall not not a whole lot but uh just little tweaks here and there so so would you say that cross country was your favorite type of racing to do yeah i really i really love cross country i i love it for the for the thrill of the competition to being able to use the race course as your strategy to the conditions usually being nasty because of the time of year that it is 
frolicking in the mud and um, sometimes ice and snow. Um, I just love those um, those added challenges to the race. So um, so cross country has been my first love for many many decades, and um, and it was fun to get back to it last year and do well enough at the nationals that I could make the the world team going to Big Big Gosh Poland, and we had a, a really fun team um, that that went over there and participated. So I was I was grateful to be a part of it. And I'd like to talk a little bit more about uh, about altitude training. That's been, uh, as you as you've kind of said, that's been a part of your uh, of your program since 1996. Can you discuss how that impacts you, and how that impacts yeah. the program? So when I was graduating from college, I was just in making those those proper decisions. I was looking at what all the gold medalists and world record holders from the 800 meters, all the way up through the marathon were. What their, what their training was like, and it seemed like all of them lived and trained at altitude and lived in a, and, and trained in a group. And so to me, that, that narrowed my choices immediately to, um, to like Boulder, Colorado, Alamosa, um, Colorado. Um, there wasn't many other um, groups around, but then when I looked at Boulder, there weren't really any groups there. Mostly people were training individually. So, um, so that led me to that first phone conversation with Coach V Hill, which um, seemed like it it altered my 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 future in a in a dramatically positive way after that that five minute phone call with him. So, um, so altitude. He believes in altitude. He let me understand more physiologically why it's why it's um, important for an endurance athlete specifically to, to live and train in altitude, and it's um, just that oxygen-carrying capacity. Your, your body creates more red blood cells, and the red blood cell oxygen um, attaches to red blood cells to go to your working muscles. So because there's more red blood cells, there's more oxygen-carrying capacity um, while you're running, and if you're taking that to, to sea level, you have more, you basically are being able to run with more oxygen feeding your muscles than um, than the other athletes who are not training at altitude. So, living and training here consistently um, has definitely has definitely uh, been the foundation of of my strength as a as an endurance athlete. I encourage people if they can't live at altitude to certainly take altitude stints a few times a year. Shalane Flanagan now does that. She lives in in um, in. Portland, Oregon, but but comes to Mammoth or goes to Flagstaff um, or the Olympic Training Center in Colorado Springs, which really isn't that high there, but she goes and does these altitude stints um, throughout the year to help build her strength, and it's just um, for any endurance athlete, whether you're a cross-country skier or a cyclist or a distance runner, that um, it's really, really important physiologically to be at altitude to help get the, the best out of yourself and to do it in a healthy way. There's people out there that would not be at altitude and, and find ways to, to get their um, red blood cell count up in an unethical way, but to me that is also risking their, their own health as an individual. So um, I feel like that's very dangerous. And besides not being legal in the sport, it's also dangerous for your health. Absolutely. Um, with altitude, a lot of people talk about the East African athletes and how they were and how it's, it makes a big difference that they were born there. Do you think after this many years that you've kind of gotten to that point, your your system is really is pretty well adjusted to it? To yeah, doing, and to I doing think anything? genetics are are definitely um, are definitely a factor for for everybody trying to pursue whatever whatever their dreams are. That you have that that benefit of, of genetics, but you can also, um, you can also manipulate your, your genes by your lifestyle, your, your genetics by your lifestyle. And so if 
Um, if you're maintaining your health on a daily basis, um, if you're hydrating and eating well, you know, obesity could run in your family, but if you're, if you're hydrating well and eating well and exercising, then you're not going to be obese. So I think there's, um, genetics only goes so far, but, um, but I think we've shown on a dramatic level the middle distance and, and distance runners in the United States, how we are starting to make our way on the podiums and even dominate in, in some races has been so exciting to see. So it's nice that we're kind of defying that, um, oh, we ha we're not, you know, we haven't, we weren't born in, uh, in altitude, so we're, we have the, um, the short end of the stick here and we'll settle for fourth, fifth, and sixth place. But um, the United States is, is really doing a great job on the scientific side of things, of educating athletes and uh, giving them options to live and train at altitude from on the distance side to throw camps in Texas. So we're getting specific on on all of our on all of the nominations within track and field, and really being able to dominate on a world level, which is really exciting to see. So, which place did you like better, in altitude, Alamosa or Mammoth Lakes? Um, Alamosa was great when I started off because I was getting my first contract was a thousand dollars a month, and it went very far in Alamosa. It wouldn't go very far in okay. in, in Mammoth Lakes. So I feel like in the for the time I, I was in my career, um, not having a contract for my first year and finally getting one um, my second year out of out of college, um, not one to entirely brag about, but getting one nonetheless um, allowed me to to live off of, and I was I was grateful for that. But um, you know, Andrew and I have been traveling the the world for the past 15 years together, and we we both agree that we haven't found a place that we like better than Mammoth anywhere in the world. So, very um, happy to to call Mammoth Lakes home. And then you mentioned him earlier. What was uh, the transition like going from being coached by Coach Vihill to Coach Mann? Um, it was it was pretty easy because Terrence was training with us for a while um, under Coach Vihill, so he had a lot of a lot of Coach Vigil's philosophy, even when he started coaching me, he evolved because he's just an insatiable learner. He's he's amazing in his wisdom as a as a coach and a healer, um, and so I feel really grateful that that transition was easy. And so Coach Vigil, right after the Olympics in 2004, Coach Vigil retired from from coaching, and um, and Terrence took over the the group and just did a, a great job. He, Terrence was there before my first marathon in 2001 and um, and really just gave me great advice going into the race on how the marathon is ups and downs and when you start to feel bad, don't think that this is what the rest of the race is going to feel like, that you just got to work out of that slump and, um, and get to the other end of it because you'll feel great a mile down the road and he was very true in that. So um, great advice when I ran my first Chicago marathon on how flat the course and that you use the turns to get different, um, all of the tangents and turns on the course to get different turnovers. So he was recommending that every turn that I made that I would kind of surge out of the turn so that I was increasing my cadence and using different muscles. So just every, every time I stepped out to race and every day in training, he gave advice and encouragement along the way, even under Coach Vigil. So um, an extraordinary teammate for for those first four years and then became a great coach for me after that. Well, very cool. So one of our, uh, our recent episodes in this podcast was about uh, marathon nutrition. Can you tell us how you approached fueling during marathons? 
Yeah, and that was that was um, probably one of the biggest focuses when I was training for my first marathon in, in 2001 was nutrition, and then you kind of tweak it um, for a while until you, you find a, um, a right strategy. But I even to this day in a marathon, instead of breaking it up into 26.2 miles, I break it up into eight water bottles, and I look forward to those water bottles every time. And I don't know if you... Um, if you noticed, but in the um, in the Boston Marathon, that um, at 40k, Meb was suffering greatly and like looking over his shoulder and then almost almost like sitting in his in his stride a little bit. Like he looked a couple inches shorter than I remember him looking. And as soon as he grabbed his water bottle, it was like 60 seconds later, his stride opened up and he stopped grimacing and he was focused again on in front of him. So it was amazing what that sugar did for him in that in that last 2K of the race. It was just a significant um, an ex- a significant example on how important nutrition is in in a marathon itself. But I I tend to in my eight water bottles I like um, Cytomax pomegranate berry flavor and I put it in um, I put about four to five ounces in every in all eight bottles and my first bottle that I get at five k is a little a little diluted it's not as as strong as as the solution in the in the middle miles while I need the calories I just get a few calories in but mostly hydration and sustaining because I'm not really that thirsty the first 5k but those middle those middle ones the solution is is pretty strong stronger than recommended but I've had to get used to doing that in training get my stomach used to digesting a real thick um, carbohydrate solution so I can get the most out of that that bottle so you use mostly drinks then? Yes, and um, and I do use at thirty at thirty or thirty five k instead of Cytomax. I'll put in two Jet Blackberry Goos because they have a little bit of caffeine in them, and it's like the two Goos in the bottle with a little bit of water because I don't like the the consistency of any of the gels that are on the market. <laughs> Neither um, do I. I yeah, so I put I put two of them in the bottle with with some water and and shake it up. And to me, I I like just that change of taste first of all, and then also it's um, probably double the calories of what I'm getting in the Cytomax. So um, it's allowing me to get more um, more energy in that in that bottle as well. At a, in a significant point in the race at 30k, when um, when you still have 12k to go, um, you need a little extra um, kick in the rear to to get moving. And how did you come up with that kind of with that particular strategy? Just tweaking over time. Yeah, yeah, and I think I think um, we what had us playing with it a lot is before Athens, knowing how important it was going to be to stay hydrated in the heat of the Athens Olympics. So we were playing with with solutions and um, trying to make them like two scoops instead of one scoop per bottle, and um, and. It, Sometimes it would cause my, my stomach to be in a little distress, but it finally adapted, and, and I was able to, to consume all of it and keep a pretty pretty high energy the entire long run. So it's it's just critical. It's a critical point. I mean, Pheidippides, in his trek to Athens, the first ever um, when he was going to to tell the Athenians of their victory, um, he died on the spot because the body is not able to do that on its own. It needs the it needs the hydration and the calories to to take on that task. And I think um, it's a gratifying one if you can if you can get it right. That's very well. That's very cool. I think uh, I think that's obviously that's something that many many marathoners struggle with. And I I thank you for your insight on that. 
Yeah. So what do you think is something that most runners could add to their training that maybe they don't necessarily have in their program? Rest. <laughs> I think I think it would it would behoove everyone to add rest. I feel like the running mentality, just the um, the obsessive compulsive personality that is um, that goes hand in hand with being a distance runner, that it it warrants kind of this struggle and no pain no gain um, attitude. And um, I think either rest days in between running hard or just learning how to rest and sleep better at night would, would make everybody's running better. So, um, so I don't necessarily think that adding more to running is going to make, is going to make people better, but maybe adding some rest might help them recover better so they can accomplish a greater task the next day. So you think most people have the, uh, the nuts and bolts of it down okay, but, but their body isn't physically ready to do the nuts and bolts? Yeah, and I mean, similar to what you, when you asked me the, the question on uh, the difference of marathon training compared to doing low, um, uh, shorter, faster races, the difference isn't that much across the board. So training doesn't really vary across the country, across the world, what people are doing, what training programs. Um, I think it's important, I will say on a, on a training-specific level, that it's important to have a program, that just going out there on your own every day um, is it would be hard to accomplish um, your goals in that way. But having someone that keeps your goals in mind and creates a program to accomplish that is really important. And I used to say, used to encourage people to join a team or join a, um, a specific program that they can meet up with because there's so much power and strength within a group, um, a group atmosphere. But some people's lives are so social and so engaging on a, on a, on an hour-to-hour basis throughout the day that running is finally their sanctuary, a time to just, like, think their own thoughts and, and get out of the, the chaos of, of, of being in crowds. So um, I think it's important to honor whatever it is um, that you need. But if you have a, a running goal, following a program is really important. So speaking of a program, uh, tell us about the process of, uh, quote-unquote, taking over the, Max, the Mammoth Track Club. Yeah, so um, uh, my husband Andrew had a um, a recreational running group here in Mammoth Lakes called the High Sierra Striders, and he started it um, 14 years ago when we moved to Mammoth. He started it here, and he puts on races, and he did the fundraising and organizing to put in the track and field facility um, that's here that's beautiful, and um, so he did all of that under the, the High Sierra Striders when Terrence got his job with the UK um, a couple of years ago. He came over to the house and um, and let us know that he was going to take this job and asked if Andrew and I wanted to take over the, the club. And we thought about it overnight and then talked to Terrence the next morning and said we would love to if we can also um, if we can also merge the recreation and racing so everything running in Mammoth Lakes is going to be under the Mammoth Track Club. And he said that would be great. So we took it on. Andrew made a couple phone calls to get some elite athletes um, joining the group. Joseph at Boyd was here. Um, um, Anna Willard and, um, and Morgan Euseny went with Terrence, um, Terrence and Jen over to the, the UK. So they left, but they have been, they've um, all returned for altitude training since leaving. And so they've joined the group just in a, in a camp environment. And then we just have gotten athletes that, that needed a chance, um, just like I did um, so many years ago, athletes that needed a, a chance and a break and support. And, and we were able to um, 
the Mammoth Mountain provides housing for us. Mammoth, the town of Mammoth Lakes gives us um, um, money out of their marketing budget every year because they see the value of us traveling the world and representing the, the community here. We have now a title sponsorship in, in ASIC Shoe Company, who it's um, a, a fantastic contract for our athletes to, to operate under so that they can make a living doing what they love to do without having any, any real expenses. Their only expenses are are really food and health insurance, and, and we cover we cover the rest. We, we pay for their therapy, and so it's really great that we can offer that support because um, our team is amazing right now, and our, our goal for, throughout our entire team with, with Coach Caster and the athletes, we're all targeting 2016 Olympic trials, and Andrew has, I believe, now seven athletes qualified for the um, Olympic marathon trials. So... Um, so pretty excited about that, and excited about the opportunity of of getting um, getting a few athletes on the uh, on the 2016 Olympic team, and we really believe that's possible. Those seven qualifiers is pretty incredible. That is, uh, you're you're right. That is really cool. Yes, so what's so what's your involvement in the in the day to day coaching and operations? Um, I I don't do any of the coaching. I I tend to just offer advice while we're training, advice before athletes go off to races. I I go to some of the races. Andrew goes to some of the races, and I go to some of the races to make sure the athletes are provided for and taken care of um, during race weekends and get any last-minute tips and motivation before getting to the start line. Um, but I do a lot of like the membership applications and making sure T-shirts are going out to all club members and that people are in. Um, I draw up the newsletter. Um, that goes out to all the memberships, just informing them of races coming up, volunteers needed, what the professionals within the club are doing so that everybody knows um, how, how great our professional athletes are performing so that they're educated on that. Um, so send out newsletters quite frequently um, talking about practices. They have practice. The general membership has practice at 7 o'clock every Tuesday morning at the track. Um, I answer a lot of emails regarding um, some of our members. Um, one of the perks is getting advice, so a lot of answering of advice and inquiries about um, people wanting to join our professional team or join general membership and asking questions about that. So just a lot of um, paperwork on membership and then um, corresponding with, with our members via email, um, as well as taking, I've recently taken on a, a different role, a more internal role with ASIC, so I'm doing a lot of traveling for, for ASIC, so it seems like my day is, aside from running and being a mom and putting food on the table for the family every day, um, it's, it's pretty busy on a daily basis. Certainly sounds like it. I was, gonna, yeah. I was thinking that even, even without all the traveling for ASICs. Yeah, and a lot of the, the Mammoth Track Club, we are a nonprofit, so a lot of it is getting sponsors for our races, but then also getting sponsors for the club itself. I do all the grant writing um, when grants are available, so um, so it ends up eating away a, a lot of your time, but it's certainly worth it if we can get some, some athletes on the 2016 Olympic team. And I think our, our main motivation and mission as a, as a club is to... You know, Andrew and I love the sport of, of running, not just for um, for the professional side of it, but because we can see in so many instances, including ourselves, how the simple act of running has not only made people better runners, but it's made them better people, and to want to share that with so many people in our community. And then we also love our community, so we want to share 
um, want to share a community with runners around the world. So welcoming people to the community to run, which is the reason for the track, as well as showing the community um, how to utilize the track in fundraising and, um, and recreation has also been really, really fun. So it's kind of our, our two passions combined into one. And um, it's a big volunteer job, but we certainly love doing it. That sounds incredible. Um, so my next question is about something that you've mentioned a couple times in passing, but is a big, big thing. Um, how has your life been affected being a mother? Oh gosh, it's been it's been so fun. Um, Piper is now three years old, and right before I left for Boulder, um, Andrew asked me to do a little shakeout run in the evening after a gym session. Um, so the team all left, and I went to go for a little run, and Piper was in the the burly behind Andrew's bike, and she said, I want to get out of here and run with Mommy. So my it ended up not being a run for me, but being able to, to run about a mile with Piper was, was so much fun to share to share running with her um, and, and see such joy in her as she was as she was running um, down one of our favorite streets. So um, I think that my biggest responsibility as a mom is is leading by example and showing her how we're, we're pursuing our passions and, and doing what we love to do and finding joy on a daily basis um, pursuing those passions. So um, I think we're doing a good job so far, but it's, it's certainly been fun to, when you, when you love your life and enjoy what you're doing, it seems like a great opportunity to also um, share that with your child. Absolutely. Um, one thing I was one thing I was just thinking of. One of my recent interviews was uh, Dot McMahon of the uh, of the Hansons group, who's a little younger than you, but not a lot, and also has, I believe, a five year old daughter. And she talks about the concept of uh, she calls them motherhood miles, where she is at her training. She still does a you know, pretty good amount of volume, but. Uh, she it's it's gone down by about 15 miles a week i think she said uh just because she doesn't sleep as much and doesn't get to recover as much and has a lot of other things to do is that something that you've noticed as well absolutely and uh, it's very wise and dot was actually my roommate at the world championships in moscow last summer um when we were racing there so um we enjoyed um sharing mom's stories and <laughs> um and she is very wise to to call it motherhood miles because while the rest of the team is out there doing their second run and going to the gym. I'm taking Piper and the dog on a walk, on a little adventure in a campground or on a trail somewhere. So um, I think spending that, I, I don't think the value of getting in a few extra miles each day at this point in my career would help me as much as um, as spending time with my child is is a, is a extraordinarily greater benefit. Absolutely. Um, do you have any plans to write a book and not a biography at all? Um, I am actually, I have been um, working on that um, in the past few months, um, so I, it's in very early stages, but um, I, you know, I've been working on a cookbook for, for a long time, and I feel like it, that's done, so I don't know why I haven't, why I'm on to the next book before one, gets, before one even gets published, but I have been um, just writing down stories, writing down um, stories that have been significant in my life, um, which is why it's easy for me to reflect right now on my time with Coach V. Hill in, um, in that transition from college to Coach V. Hill because I was just writing about it last week, um, trying to um, kind of dig deeper because it's easy to just tell a story at its surface, but I'm trying to get those underlying emotions on on how hard it was to make that decision when it would have been easy to, to go off and pursue a pursue a profession. Why why my conversation went from 
I, I've been doing this all my life, I want to do something different, to I've been doing this all my life, I should try a little harder. And so it's really, really fun to, to really dig down and, and, um, and remember what that emotion was in some of those deci earlier decisions that I made. So um, I am writing, writing things down right now. They're not, in, they're not bound in, a, in leather yet, but, um, but hopefully it'll, it'll get there. And if not, it's some great documentation to pass on to my daughter. <laughs> Yeah, because uh, you definitely need some t something to fill the fill all that free time you have. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, <laughs> yeah. So it's it's been it's been a fun process. I I was a, a creative writing and journalism major, um, a double major in creative writing and journalism at the University of Arkansas, and I got away from writing, and this was just an excuse to get back into to something that I really enjoy doing. And uh, tell us about the cookbook. I absolutely love um, cooking and eating and sharing time around the, a table with, with friends and family. So um, I've just been collecting the, the recipes I've played with over the years. And it's, it, to me, it's, it could be finished because I have hundreds of recipes hmm. documented. And that was the hardest part because it's like a, I put in a handful of this and a pinch of that and um, not, not the greatest at measuring. So right. actually having to to redo recipes by measuring them and it's not coming out as great so it, it, that's taking some some tweaking but I have so many recipes but then tomorrow I make something a little different and I like it better so it seems like a never-ending process <laughs> right. so, um, so that's been the hardest thing is just get get the recipes that have been good and people have enjoyed around the table get them get them um, bound together and, and out to share with other people I should be doing that, but instead I just have the philosophy of there's a better recipe around the corner, so I'm going to wait till next week and then um, have the same the same thoughts um, as time goes by. So it's um, it's been a slow slow process, but I have a lot of recipes down and a lot of fun ones that um, I've enjoyed with Olympians and um, and some pretty uh, incredible minds around our around our dining room table. And uh, so, if you had to pick one or two favorites, oh. I realize that's very I mean, hard. That's it would be very hard for my mother too. Yeah, um, I would say one of my favorites is avocado enchiladas, and mostly because avocados are on sale right now. So I was thinking that maybe I was going to make them. Well, there you go. <laughs> so that's why it's that's why it's popping into my mind um, a little easier than than some of the others. But I love, I really love fall recipes with squashes and fried sage and um, kind of those warming, nurturing dishes of, of fall. Probably my, some of my favorite dishes have, have come from that season. So, um, yeah, it's a, it's a difficult one to say. But um, since avocado enchiladas are going to make its way to my table in the next week or so, I would just say them. <laughs> well, I hope they turn out well. Uh, just yeah. a couple more. I just have a couple more things because I don't want to keep you for too much longer. Um, so what real basic advice would you have for someone preparing for their first race? Ooh, I would say... Say, um, it does it, is there a specific distance? Uh, no, not 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 really. Yeah, um, I would say a first race is always scary. That there's a lot of um, a lot of doubts that that can can creep into your mind and insecurities um, just in the couple of days leading up to the to being on the starting line. And so I like to encourage people to write down five reasons why they should be successful in their race and just commit them to memory and um, 
So sometimes it could be the night before just jotting down five reasons why, why you're going to do great and why you should succeed and reach your goal and then um, rely on that throughout the race. When the going gets tough, think of those reasons why. You know, I've, I've put in the work. I'm, um, I'm hydrated. I, my, I have, like, like, I'm healthy. There's just so many, so many reasons on a, on a simple level to, um, to more sophisticated reasons um, that, you're, that you're running for um, that, that can keep you going when the going gets tough. And then I, uh, I have to ask, what was it like crossing the finish line uh, in Athens? Oh, it was wonderful. And it, it was wonderful because my last glance up was to the right of the stadium where all of my family and, and friends who came on the trip um, were all grouped together. So it was um, just a reminder on how um, integral your your support system is to, to getting to your goals. It was um and it, an extraordinary, extraordinary feeling to reach reach a goal that is really the epitome of the of the sport, the Olympic Games, to have reached that goal. But I also remember being on the island of Crete with with Andrew and Coach Vihill just um, just a a couple days, maybe three or four days before the race, and saying to Coach Vihill, you know, I I know we're here to we still have a race to run here, but um, but. I have the mentality that I didn't even care how the race went because I was so excited about the process leading up to that, that I became a, a stronger athlete, a, a happier athlete. I had so much fun training for that race. I had um, hired training partners to, to, um, to move to, to Mammoth for the summer, and, and we beat up on each other every day out on the trails to, and had fun doing it to... Um, to taking them a kind of a gift, taking them to the Olympic trials on the track and letting them experience that, to getting closer with Coach Vihill on, on belief and, um, and, uh, and pride of running, to working with the physiologist Mike Shannon at the Olympic Training Center who encouraged me to move some of my um, workouts up to 9,000 feet instead of 7,000 feet um, to give to give me a, a more challenging workout. I mean, there was just so many people involved in in making that goal come to fruition that I was I was so grateful to have really in a time I felt that the race itself was my kind of give back to them so that they could see that that commitment they shared was worth it. And even my, my husband, Andrew, was riding the bike next to me all the time and giving me fluids and just a huge supporter, stretching me out before every workout, giving me a massage after every workout. So it was just a huge commitment by everybody. Coach Vio was away from his wife for months at a time so that he could be up in Mammoth Lakes training. So just a lot of, a lot of commitment from a lot of people that, so that allowed it to happen. So I was happy to be able to execute the race and, and show them that it was all worth it. Well, very cool. My last thing is these five really quick questions that I ask people. What, number one, what was your pre-race meal? I like pesto pasta with salmon. And what was your favorite workout? Um, three times two-mile repeats at 9,000 feet up at the Lakes Basin in Mammoth Lakes. That sounds excessive, but okay. It, it's a burner. It's a lung burner. <laughs> it's like that, that workout that leaves you like with that bloody taste in your mouth and in the back of your throat. Again, sounds excessive. Anyway, yeah. <laughs> what was your favorite race event to go to? Um, LA Marathon. And what would you do for fun when you were when you weren't uh, when you weren't training? Um, cooking and entertaining. Okay. And what race would you have loved to run but never got a chance to? 
the Marathon de Mudoc in the south of France. Instead of water stations, the wineries come out to the road and you sample <laughs> wine throughout the 26.2 miles. So it sounds like, it, that sounds excessive to me. That sounds like a disaster, but it's always been on my, on my bucket list. And people run in costumes. So it's just a, it's just a celebration, really. <laughs> well, that, that sounds like an interesting day, if nothing else. Well, <laughs> yeah. Well, Dina, thank you very much for your time today. And we look forward to this being published. Of course. Awesome. Thanks so much. I appreciate it. All right. Thanks, Dina. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. This has been a Runners Connect podcast. We'd love it if you could leave a short review on our iTunes page to let us know what you think of our podcasts and how we can make them better for you. Also, if you have a question about this episode or any other, please don't hesitate to ask. You can leave a comment on the webpage or leave us a voicemail at 617-356-7969. We'll do our best to answer as many of these questions as we can, either in a future episode or in one of our monthly Q&A sessions. I'm your host, Lucas Felden, and thanks for listening.